Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Shake. Got a fun episode for you guys today. Informative episode episode for you guys today. A, uh, a fairly, I would say, uh, politically bent episode for you today. <laughs> Everybody kind of knows where my politics are at and, this point, And this I think. guy was right on board with Yeah, Chris. like you said, we're singing from the same hymnal. And it is, it is Robert Bryce, and he is an author, journalist, film producer, and podcaster. He's been writing about energy, power, innovation, and politics for 30 years. He's a research fellow at the Austin-based Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, a contributing writer at Forbes, the host of the Power Hungry podcast, which you can find anywhere that you podcast, and the author of six books, including his latest, A Question of Power, Electricity, and the Wealth of Nations. His new feature-linked documentary, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, is available on numerous streaming platforms and can now be streamed for free on Roku. I do want to check out that documentary, but before we go any further, let's take a moment to hear about Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, yeah, my t-shirt right here, yep. garage gear, stickers, publications. They, I love the uh, the wax. I'm already out of wax because I have everything dirty, basically, is right. when it comes down to Yeah, well, to. it's going to go after my new truck that I got, for sure. That We're will gonna, be yeah. good. Actually, we'll hear about that on our next ad. Yes. <laughs> Regardless, Petrobox is a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. There are actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at MyPetrolBox.com, and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. And I think what is going to be interesting when people listen to this episode is it's very, very easy to go, oh, well, they don't believe in global warming or, oh, they don't, they don't believe in electric cars or oh, they don't believe in progress. And none of that is true. And I think one of the most- You do make fun of progress a lot. I do. I personally don't, I personally don't like things necessarily that are too complicated. But as I say in the interview, I don't care if other people do. Right. Okay. I don't care if people like cars that fart. That's fine. <laughs> you can like that stuff. That's okay. I'm not, I am not a Luddite. I am not anti-technology. You do have an Xbox. I do. I do. I, have, don't. I do. I mine cryptocurrency. That's true. That's not very Luddite, is it? Nope, it's so, not. So my point is, is that this interview, it's one of the best parts of this interview is talking about the societal impacts of everything that we're doing for, to combat climate change. Right, it's whatever right. what we're what we're doing to society and 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 the consequences of that, and we can. I don't want to have the argument about whether global warming exists here or not. It doesn't. It's not relevant. What's relevant is how it's being used as a fulcrum to change society and how it is going to affect people. And I think that is one of the most important things to take from this interview. And we've had the conversation before about middle income, lower income, and where they're right. going to go and all this yep. other stuff. And, and Robert Bryce, is, which is, he's a very smart man, and we're, we're going to talk about it with him and see what he thinks. But before we do that, what have you got for us? Now, before we get too much further, let's take a break here and talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are actually passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it's a simple, foolproof, two-step system, easy, and gives an amazing finish. And right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code 
Overcrest. The discount code is good not only on obercarcare.com, but also on detailedimage.com and carsuppliesWarehouse.com. Please go check them out today. Hello, this is Robert. Mr. Bryce, it's Chris and Jake from the Overcrest Podcast. Now, if you call me Mr. Bryce, I'm going to hang up now. My dad is Mr. <laughs> Bryce. So. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm getting old enough. I don't have to respect my elders anymore because I'm. Basically, you are the elder yeah, at this point. At this point, I am. Yeah, no, I, I'm the I'm the oldest guy in the room. There's no doubt about it. But yeah, the, Robert will be fine. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for coming to hang out with us, man. Yeah, man, it's all good. It's been interesting because I've been kind of doing a little bit of research on you and seeing where you came from and everything like that. And you seem like a really smart version of Jake and I. Like, you're just way smarter than us. But everything you're saying makes so much sense, and we've kind of touched on a lot of it ourselves. And I'm really excited to kind of go through some of the topics that we have to, 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 to really get some, some brain food on, on where we're going with all of this stuff. Sure. Well, happy to, happy to talk about it. There's a lot, lot to discuss, so I'm ready when you are. How did you get involved with politics and workings of energy before we kind of you know dive into the meat of the thing how did you get started with all this because you really know your shit so how did you get to be there well thanks uh and i'm glad to be on with you um well you know a long time ago a writer told me or said this thing that what you pick does you don't pick what you write it picks you and i feel there's some aspect of that that you know i'm born and raised in tulsa uh you know which for about 20 minutes was known as the oil capital of the world um my dad wasn't in the energy business but he knew a lot of people were so i kind of grew up understanding you know some parts of how the business worked but when i when i started writing in journalism i started writing about politics and the more i started writing about politics the more i became interested in the politics of energy and power and so uh, one thing led to another. No, do you mean power politically or do you mean power with power? Well, yes, both <laughs> because, because whoever has the energy and who controls the energy flow of energy has the power. When I, when I speak of energy and power, I'm, I'm also, I'm thinking, yes, political power, there's a double entendre there, but yes, uh, uh, it, power for in the form of electrical power and then energy we think about as, you know, coal, oil, natural gas, et cetera. So, um, yeah, so I, I think of what I write about now is energy, power, innovation, and politics, right? So those, those you know, a lot of, covers a lot of things. But um, so, you know, once I, you know, I, I, I was familiar with Enron going back into the 90s, my first book was on Enron. And then that led to, you know, one thing that has just seen, seemingly led to another in my uh, so-called career. Right. <laughs> One thing I found interesting driving through Oklahoma is none of the, the pumps are turning. You know, Jake and I just flew down to Texas and picked up a car and we drove back roads all the way back through Oklahoma and stuff like that. And it's, it seems like, man, there's a lot of poverty, not a lot of pumps turning around over there. Well, Oklahoma has, uh, is, is, has long been a state that has been economically challenged. And, um, you know, I'm proud of being from Oklahoma, but there's just no doubt when it comes to you know, issues of poverty, opioid addiction, you know, there are a lot of challenges, but, um, you know, it's also a state that has been, continues to be a critical energy producer in America, one of the biggest gas producers uh, in, in the world, if you stack it up against other countries. And so, um, you know, this is one of the things that increasingly in my work, as I look around the United States and I see what's going on, well, there's a very clear division in terms of the urban rural divide and between right. the states, the states that produce stuff and the states that have big cities and produce 
you know, online, you know, gizmos and, you know, electronic stuff, right? There's a, there's a growing divide in America between the, you know, the, 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 the urban regions and the, and the rural states. And it's I think like it's tangible versus intangible. Yeah. Well, it's people that work in the dirt and, you know, or produce things that come out of the earth or, you know, there's just a, you know, the very stark divide. And I, you see it, even if we want to, you know, talk about cars and I bet you do is just that the, I, I spend a lot of time driving around rural America. I don't see Teslas out there. I see a lot <laughs> of F1, F-150s and Rams and Silverados. And so there's this bias in the political class and the, the uh, and the academics oh well we'll just everybody will buy drive electric vehicles those do nothing for the people that live in marfa and van horn texas or in uh you know oak mulgee oklahoma they don't drive teslas out there come on i mean it's ridiculous right right and we're gonna get there for sure um i want to get kind of like this so i read through you did you testified before congress and one of the, i pulled one line out of there it says i'm adamantly opposed to the notion that we should attempt to electrify everything. And before I ask what you mean by that, I want to ask, why do you think there are so many many people that are trying to do exactly that? Why are there people out there that are trying to electrify everything? What is the what is the goal? Because we all know that what everybody's doing, we can see it. But the question is always why? Right. Well, the justification for this is climate change. I've written a book about electricity. I've made a documentary called Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. I've been all around the world looking at the world through the lens of electricity. It's the world's most important and fastest growing form of energy. But this idea that we should try and electrify everything is not just wrong, it's dangerous. And, and, and the motive that this idea that we should electrify everything is coming from some, you know, uh, strident climate change activists who have this fantastical notion that's not based in physics, not based in math, that we can put up enough renewable energy, you know, generation capacity that we can electrify the entire transportation, plant, we can electrify all of, of industry. And that it's going to be cheap and easy. And, you know, it, it's just not true. And further, I think the real danger here uh, is that we're going to put all of our energy eggs in one basket and put it onto the electric grid and make ourselves more vulnerable to, you know, disruptions of, of whatever kind, whether natural disasters, hackers or whatever. Yeah, that's kind of one of the things that I was thinking about as I looked at the, you know, the, the not the Keystone, that one's different pipeline. The one that goes from Texas up to the Northeast was hacked by you know, Russians or whoever decided to hack it. And it was just like this segment of, uh, of, of infrastructure. But if they decide to go after the electrical grid, they're wiping out a whole uh, slew of different things, not only transportation, but uh, infrastructure for buildings and air conditioning and power and, and the internet and everything else. So it's, you know, when you think of all your eggs in one basket, it's more than just infrastructure for transportation, eggs in one basket. It's everything. It's people's lives at that point. Yeah. Well, exactly. And you're right. And it's one of the things I mentioned, the colonial pipeline hack, it sent the entire East Coast into into convulsions. And that was just one pipeline. And yeah, of course, it's delivering motor fuel. And, and that's critical. But the guys who did it, hell, they didn't even have to leave their they had their house shoes on. They didn't even leave their house. <laughs> I mean, it's like, and so they they're able to affect a, a, a create this massive economic dislocation cause emergency declarations in several states 
And now this crazy notion, oh, we'll electrify everything, including all of our cars, all of our trucks. Well, it's insane, man. You know, first from a, just a, a copper standpoint, right? And and transformers and transmission lines, distribution lines, I don't think it can be done. And second, even if you could do it, it would be done at extraordinary cost to ratepayers and hurt low and middle income uh, uh, residents and consumers the most. But further, as you point out, it makes us more vulnerable to any kind of disruption, whether it's by malefactors or by some natural or naturally occurring event. Well, I was there was we talked about this on another one of our podcasts. There was like a report that came out earlier in the 2000s um, under the Bush administration that talked about the risk of an EMP attack and what would happen. What would happen if there was an EMP attack? And it seems like crazy to even talk about it, but it's a significant possibility that that's something that could happen. And it was a danger. And they just basically said, well, within a matter of weeks, society would completely collapse if there was something majorly wrong with the electrical grid. It's Oh, and, there, and there's no question about it. And we've seen those, I think it was called the Carrington event. It was in the 1800s, the exact year escapes me, but a massive pulse of solar radiation and it would fry all of our electronics and we would be up, and I, I, we're on a podcast, so I can say up shit creek, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like, with no paddle. <laughs> yeah, with no paddle. And but but, uh, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that issue of the EMP, because I've just been looking at, you know, I geek out on this stuff. This is where I live. But um, the North American Electric Electric Reliability Council, I didn't know. Yes, that's right. Um, um, they are uh, they assess what the risks are to the grid and uh, the Electrical Reliability Council. Anyway, they they came up. They just did a, an analysis. It just came out a few days ago. And they actually rank the EMP possibility as fairly low. It's what, uh, you know, the utility executives don't worry about that. What do they worry about? They worry about, and they say the biggest risk is what they see, their term is changing resource mix, which, which when you read into the text, it's the closure of natural, of, of coal and nuclear plants and being replaced with weather dependent renewables, such as wind and solar. That they, they are pointing out is the biggest danger to the grid. So why are we doing that? Cause we, we can talk about, you know, California is suffering with the power grid. We saw what happened in Texas with all the windmills that got frozen up and cost everybody it just total disaster over the winter why what is the motivation why are we doing this why don't we just build more nuclear power plants and just i don't understand what this fascination with solar and wind that doesn't work i just i it's it's tough for me as a logical person well it looks good on paper obviously yeah but it it, to me even it doesn't look good on paper what 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 is the motivation why are we doing this it's i'm always after the why yeah, well, I I think it's pretty. I mean, it's it's simple and complicated at the same time. The simple one is that people just love this idea. Oh, that's natural energy, right? That there's this idea that oh, it's the sun and the wind, so it must be. We're going to get in tune with nature. Forget about Uyghur slave labor in Xinjiang to produce half of the world's polysilicon for your solar panels. Forget about the deadly effect that wind turbines are having on bats and birds. Forget about the fact that, and I've documented this and wrote a report on it a few months ago, over 300 communities from Maine to Hawaii have rejected a restricted wind project since, uh, since 2015. You don't read about it in the New York Times. It doesn't fit the narrative that our future is in renewables. No, wrong. Who's stupid. profiting here? Because I always like follow the money. So what... There's, exactly. Is, where's the, who's making the money here? Why are exactly. we? Is it so, is it just restructuring the entire energy the, the entire energy infrastructure just to line somebody's pockets? And there's like 
lobbyists that are just saying, hey, do this. You know, we get this well, there's, program. There's, there, there is a lot of that. I mean, believe me. But I'll just finish that one thought. Yeah. This idea that renewables are our future. No, they were our past. We were able to get away from using windmills and, so, and, and biomass and draft animals. That was terrible. We've gone past that. We have thankfully escaped that. But what you mentioned, Texas, and I live in Austin. I was blacked out, my wife and I, for 45 hours in February. Well, follow the money, to your point. Well, okay, so follow the money. What happened in the years immediately preceding the blackouts? $66 billion, according to the solar and wind industry's own trade groups, $66 billion spent on solar and wind in Texas. Why did they do it? Because they got $22 billion in subsidies. That's why. So that's 49 other states paying for windmills in Texas? (laughs) Well, it's, I mean, some of that money is coming from Texas, but it's the production tax credit for wind. It's the investment tax credit for solar. These are incredibly lucrative for companies like NextEra, for, uh, you know, some foreign companies like uh, Enel, EDF, uh, Electricité de France, uh, 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 EDP, the Portuguese firm, uh, Eberdrola, the Spanish firm, they're all rushing over here to collect these tax credits because it's so incredibly lucrative. You know, I, I, I get really cynical about this because I, I'm just completely convinced it has nothing to do with climate change. This is all about the money. Right. Well, the, the climate change, whether it's occurring or not, is a debate for a different different time. Yeah. But it's it's that it's being used as a fulcrum to leverage policy that doesn't make sense. Precisely. And it's making our electric grid more fragile. And that's the big danger, I think. Not only, you know, this danger that we would attempt uh, to, to electrify all of our transportation, which would, I mean, I think it's truly, I think it's impossible, given the physical constraints on the amount of transmission and so on we can, we can, we can build. But it's just deeply dangerous because then, as we talked about before, you're you're making your entire transportation system dependent on one source. Of- oh. I, 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 can, I, I lost I, you for about 20 seconds there. <clears throat> no, I'm, I'm here. I, I can hear you fine. I'm, I'm, I'm standing up. I'm right by my window here. Yeah, I'm, I don't I'm know. trying to Shoot. make sure we're get a good signal. But anyway, I was pontificating. I was going off there. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's. The thing is, is that when I look at this, it for me, it's all about following the money, right? I I, yes. I see as okay, we are in from a from a from a you know thousand feet in the air point of view, we're at the point now where this is inevitable. It is going to happen. I don't want it to happen, but all this EV stuff, it's it's going to it's going to try to happen, right? We're trying. We're going to try to give birth to this. Okay, we're going to reach the nine-month thing, and we're going to try to give birth to this EV thing. And you've got GM, Ford, uh, Volkswagen. Volkswagen. Well, Volkswagen's not an American company. I'm just talking. Oh. So you've got the Ameri- American manufacturers, and I suppose that the, the European manufacturers are in on it too. They've all invested billions right. under the pretense that the government is going to subsidize what they're doing. So you have right. billions and billions and billions of dollars that are already earmarked or already spent already for research into EV, battery, blah, blah, blah. And I look, I go, okay, like you said, there's not enough copper, there's not enough materials, and we'll get there. I want to talk about that later. But you see what's going on, you go, how can this not happen? Because you have these companies that are just monolithic companies. They're all in. And not only are they all in, but you've got an entire political party that's all in. And you've got the lobbyists from these companies lobbying this political party, and they're all making this happen. 
but nobody is really thinking about what they're going to do after they give birth to this baby, right? <laughs> Once this all comes down the pike in 20, 2030, 2035, how, what, what is going to happen when the, when the chickens come home to roost and all this stuff has been passed, all this money has been spent, GM and Chrysler are like, oh, Ford, here's the cars, let's go, let's do this. And there's, there's you, you, imagine going home and got the baby in your arms you didn't put together the nursery. There's no there's no milk in the fridge. There's no formula. In right. fact, the better analogy fact, is you can't feed the baby. In fact, the woman is gone and you're just a man holding a baby in an empty house. What are we doing? How is this gonna happen? Where are we going? Well, and then let's look forward about okay, well, when the baby goes to college now, since we're gonna stretch the metaphor here, what happens when your Tesla's twenty years old? Or yep. 25 years old. Oh, and the battery's dead. Oh, you're gonna have to take the whole car apart. Oh, and they can't they can't recycle the lithium ion batteries because they're not worth anything. Right. I mean, you know, so there's second and third order effects here, but let's look at the first order effects, right. which are the, the the charging stations. Well, the the electric utilities are looking at this and saying to the government, Oh, you want us to build charging stations? How many do you want? We'll be happy to build them and rate base them. And who pays for that? It's gonna be the low and middle income consumers who will never, never drive a Tesla. Right. They're never gonna be able to afford it. And yet they're gonna be required to subsidize the EV buyers who on average have a household income that is two times the national average. I mean, this is this is Robin Hood in reverse. Right. This makes no sense whatsoever. It's interesting so because it's it's the party of equity of outcome that is pushing all of this, but it hurts lower and middle income so much. Because I think when I think of cars, I think the freedom to travel. The freedom to get in your car, seek opportunity, seek opportunity, leave whatever shitty neighborhood you're in, go to another town, get a job, hop in your car, leave, is is one of the the great. It really helps Americans, right? Just low income, middle income Americans, the freedom Amen. to go get a job. They're not going to be able to. They're going to be stuck on public transportation, which, in my opinion, is kind of what they want anyway. They want everybody to be on public transportation, but that's besides the point. So, what what is going to happen to these people? They're going to get left behind. Well, it's you're exactly right. I mean, we're singing from the same hymnal here. God bless you. I mean, it's just the but it, you know this is this is of a piece with this entire push. I've 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 written about a woman named Jennifer Hernandez. She's a lawyer in California. She's pressing two different lawsuits against the state of California. One of the things that that she is pursuing is this vehicle miles traveled uh, tax or vehicle miles traveled rule that effectively does exactly what you're talking about. It to limit the personal mobility of low and middle income consumers. You, you limit their personal mobility, their physical mobility, and you limit their economic mobility. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's exactly what you're saying. I, you know, I, I make a pretty good living. Well, why am I able to make a pretty good living? Because oh, last week I flew up to Minneapolis. Well, they paid me to go up there, right? But if I can't fly, I can't collect that check, right? right? If I couldn't go up to Columbus, Ohio, or wherever I've been, you know, my ability to move myself and travel allows me to make more money. And yet this whole scheme of, of, of rules around climate change and transportation and city planning are all designed to effectively, and the right word is, deprive people of their ability to be physically mobile. Why? Because, well, <laughs> climate, hello, have you not been paying attention? Yeah, but it's, it's almost like that's just, that's just the, that's just, like I said, that's just the fulcrum. The why is like, 
it almost seems like we're you need you need a permanent underclass for for government to continue to grow and exist because those people need to exist to continue to you know continue to push push the the political machine along if everybody's happy and everybody's copacetic you know you don't need any government they you just you don't need it but as long as everybody's suffering you need it Boy, you're more cynical than I am. <laughs> <laughs> that's as far as I usually let him go on the podcast. Yeah, that's the most we're getting too far. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to. I want to just read something in your congressional testimony and just have you comment sure. on it because I think it's an incredible statistic. Um, in your congressional testimony, you stated that a CEC report found that by 2030, quote, electricity consumption from passenger EV charging could reach about 5,500 megawatts, which doesn't mean anything to me until I read this context, around midnight and 4,600 megawatts around 10 a.m. on a typical weekday, increasing electricity demand by 20 to 25% at those times. To put that 5,000 megawatts or so of new generation capacity in perspective, it is roughly equal to the rated output of all of California's existing geothermal and nuclear plants combined. Which they want to get rid of nuclear. Yeah, but that's that's even beside the point because you have like if all the mandates are twenty thirty twenty thirty five, they just want everything to to switch over, and it, it's just it's not possible. It's not possible. So what are we going to do? I just what are we going to do? How is this going to work? What is it going to look like when we're in twenty thirty three? And you can't buy in a, a gasoline car anymore, but there's you can't charge your other thing, or your gra- you got to go to your grandma's funeral because she died of heat stroke two weeks ago. How are we? How is this happening? <laughs> well, I think it's going to be great if you're an auto dealer in Reno. Yep. I mean, you know, or in Phoenix, right? You know, because they're not going to pass those kinds of rules. I mean, you know, Massachusetts pandas, uh, passed a sim- implemented a similar ban on internal combustion engines. You know, what's it really is to follow up on your earlier remark. What's amazing to me, I mean, and just, and I say this as a, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, I'm just flat disgusted, <laughs> but that in the, some of the most heavily Democratic states in this country, Massachusetts, California, uh, New York, Illinois, what are they doing? They're closing their nuclear power plants, claiming they're going to put up renewables. Bullshit. You can't build wind in, in California. You can't build wind energy projects in California. You just can't do it. Same in New York. Because of the local backlash, and they the, the Democrats say we're we're the party of the poor, you know, the middle class, the working class. The hell they are! What all of this stuff that they're doing with in terms of climate, transportation, EVs, it's all regressive. It all is going to screw the poor and the middle class, and they don't care because the you know it, the the Demo- It's funny, you know, in my in just in the last twenty or thirty years, the, the the parties have switched where the Republicans have become the party of the working class, and the Democrats have become the party of the elites. It is odd. Just to say the least, it is odd. Robert, I want to take your point a little further. You mentioned, well, if you're in California or Massachusetts where they ban internal combustion cars, you'll just hop the border and buy a car over there. But I think what we've talked about on the podcast before is we've seen so many manufacturers that are actually saying we are done investing and engineering any internal combustion engine because we've been told the future is electric. So our concern right. is there won't be no, any you're gonna more be, you're internal gonna be combustion a, cars to You're going to be driving a 90 you're going to drive a 96 Camry. Can you imagine the used truck market in 2035? Oh. 
Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that because I thought about that a little bit myself. And, you know, all the cars in my driveway, well, I have an 05 Tundra or no 05 Forerunner, which I love, has almost a quarter million miles on it. I have, a, I have an 06 uh, Tundra pickup that has over 200,000 miles. I have an Acura that's a 2014, I think it's about 90,000 miles. I don't, I don't want to, I'm going to ride, I'm going to drive them until the wheels fall off. I don't, you know, I don't need it. I don't, don't need, don't want a new car. But I think it's interesting what you said about their, you know, these big automakers are saying, we're not going to invest any more engineering dollars in internal combustion engines. Well, okay. Well, so I hear that and I think, oh, well, they're not going to invest in any more engineering, but they didn't say they aren't going to make them. <laughs> right? right. Well, so, they, they, what if they're not, they're not going to be allowed to be sold though, is, is the problem. Well, I, but see, I, I think when push comes to shove and they realize that these, all these electric cars that they're building aren't selling, mm -hmm. then there's going to be a change of heart. In fact, it's funny, you know, I, I live in Austin. I was just had some errands. I was up in, in uh, North, in North Austin. I drove through a Nissan dealership. I, I bought my forerunner there about four or five years ago. And there's a big Nissan dealer. I drove through the lot. I did not see a single Nissan leaf anywhere in the lot. I saw Rogues, I saw Maximas, I saw, you know, uh, with the, not the Sentra, whatever, the, you know, the uh, Ultima, tons of those. I didn't see a single electric vehicle on the lot. And I thought, well, isn't this interesting, right? Well, why don't they have any on the lot? Maybe because, oh, I don't know, they're not selling them. <laughs> right. But well, these manufacturers are investing so much money. Are they going to allow the government to let this happen? Or are they going to... You know, they've got this, I don't know if you know the the new infrastructure bill that's like 25 inches tall. In it is a an exploratory program to, uh, what is it, the mileage or the usage fee? Right. They're yeah. going to they're gonna yeah. research how they're going to figure out how to tax people because they're not going to be able to have a gas tax because nobody's going to be using gas. So they're going to try and figure out how to track where everybody goes, which is great. But they're also going <laughs> to, you know, figure out uh, how many miles you drove. And you can bet that the gasoline cars are going to be paying that tax just like the electric cars on, except the gasoline tax or the, the mileage tax guys are also going to be paying, paying the gasoline tax. So they're going to be double taxed. And I just feel like there's well, these little... we don't know that yet. Come on. They're not going to rescind the gas tax when this comes out. Give me a break. They never take anything away. It's, it's, There's but, Mr. But I, Cynic I think again. Right, but I think you're right. You know, and I saw that that bit in the infrastructure bill about it's this trial balloon on the vehicle miles travel business and right. that they're going to tax your mobility. And I, I think it's just pernicious. And this whole infrastructure thing, it's it's all just, a you know, lollipops for every special interest group in America that, you know, it, carbon capture and sequestration, you know, wind turbines. Everybody's getting, a, you know, everybody, you know, gets gets laid in this deal. I mean, it's just it's in, it's, it, it, it's not me. I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> but it, but it's, it reminds me of that great that great Lily Tomlin line. No matter how cynical I get, I can't keep up. It's just you know this this. Uh, hey, that's this, me. This, <laughs> yeah. No, but it's but it's true. But I think your point, and and it's one that I think is really important. And I know you're car guys, but I think. You know, this idea about personal mobility, mm -hmm. and I had an argument with a guy, an acquaintance in, here in Austin uh, oh, a couple months ago, and, you know, we were talking about climate change, and he goes, well, gasoline should be more expensive, and I said, really? You think so? And we, you know, there's a guy we know in common, he's a working guy, an immigrant, works his tail off, and he lives outside in a little town outside of Austin, Lockhart, and he drives, he drives 30, 40 miles every day. I said, 
how is expensive gasoline helping him? Mm. That's money that it go. The more expensive fuel gets, the the worse off he is. The less food he puts on his table, the mobility that he's able to afford puts food on his table. And yet you're telling the oh he should pay more. Well, spoken like a true South Austin elite Democrat who doesn't really know what it is to work hard. I mean, it's just incredible. Well, just imagine if this work you're talking about is a Mason. You know, he charges whatever it is, $50 an hour for his masonry work. Whatever these, when his costs of mobility go up, he's not only going to probably make a little bit less money, but he's also going to pass the increase of that cost on to the consumer. Of course. This money doesn't just come from nowhere. Right. If he can, right. If he if can, he can but, if the market yeah. will but, bear it. But I, but I think the other part of this, and you know, I, I know you mentioned my congressional testimony and I put a lot of effort into it, but the other part of this that I think if we think zoom out, right. And you know, what's the big picture here? Well, okay. We've talked about affordability. We've talked about resilience. Well, wh- who controls the global market for cobalt, for neodymium, praseodymium, yep. lanthanum? My favorite all country. These, <laughs> all, of these, all of these rare earth elements that are, and, and, and cobalt isn't a rare earth element, but the rare earths, you know, praseodymium, lanthanum, neodymium, that are critical in these, in, in, in wind turbines, are critical in, 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 in electric cars. China controls that market. Mm-hmm. So for um, and almost my entire life, really since the 1973 oil embargo, I'm 61. For almost my entire life, Congress and the federal government focus has been on can't be de- too dependent on foreign commodities. Well, we hate OPEC. We, you know, we don't want to rely on them. And now suddenly we're going to change our our. I made this point in a, my book, Power Hungry, which I published 11 years ago. We're going to change our our reliance on the Saudis, the Kuwaitis, whoever in OPEC and make us completely dependent on the Chinese. The Chinese are not our friends. <laughs> no, no, that's that's for sure. And what's crazy is that we finally got to a point where we can be somewhat energy independent with the exploratory, you know, petroleum and the shale and everything else that we're doing here. We were doing really, really well up until, I don't know, a couple of years ago, a year ago. And then all of a sudden this, the spigots got turned off because, like I said, this is all these little levers and fulcrums that they have to try and coerce people not to use combustion engine, increase cost, make it hard. It's before you get too political down that rabbit hole, Chris, I'm going to stop you and change directions. One thing, Robert, you were talking about all this mining, all the resources are in China. What's interesting is if you look that the end goal is to prevent climate change, you know, to go green with all of this, the mining and the impact to the globe just to extract these minerals, you, I'm sure you know more than I, is terrible. And I had a saying that I came up with on the podcast that I love to repeat. And it's the most environmentally friendly car you can drive is the one you already own. Because if the manufacturers stopped producing these new cars and had to refine all these new materials and your old car didn't go to a landfill, I have to imagine that offsets any gasoline and greenhouse emissions you'd ever produce. Well, Jake, I think, you know, you're right. I mean, you know, and I don't know, you know, the carbon payback, these ideas about, you know, the carbon debt and, the, you know, the, the, the carbon intensity of these these products. But you're right. I mean, that and and it's one of the reasons why I'm committed to these, you know, older cars that I have is one, and they work great. I don't want to go buy something new. I don't really like these big new electronic screens. I, if I want to watch television, I'll stay at home. I don't want to watch TV <laughs> in my car, right? I I look at those big electronic screens and all the different things and I think, 
I want an analog switch that I can touch and make it go on and off. I don't want to have to touch a touch screen. I just don't like it. Well, I hate but to sound yeah. like I hate to think of it from that perspective. I'm I'm with you 100%. Like I'm an old car guy. I just drove a 73 Pinto across the country. It was masochistic. I get it. I understand. 73 Pinto? I did. I did. It's a wagon. Did you have too. a big old crash guard on the back? I there? did not. <laughs> I, I did not. But I hate to sound I hate to sound like a luddite when doing it because I love tech. I do. I love tech. I love technological progress, but not at the expense of so much, right? I just, you know, I don't need the screens either, but I don't mind if other people want to like that stuff. That's fine. They can like that. If there's a market out there for people to have, so they can have farting sounds and Netflix in their car. Great. (laughs) All the power to them. If they want to do that. My problem is when it's just like the, the square peg in a round hole, where they're just putting a 50-ton hydraulic press on it to shove that square <laughs> peg through the round hole and shove it down everybody's throat with no market market action or market levers whatsoever to make it happen. That's where the problem comes in for me. No, I, I agree with you. And some of this is just technology for technology's sake. And it's one of the reasons why I prefer those you know, older vintage vehicles because I, you know, just the simplicity of it, because that to me, I, that's what I like. I know how to work it all. And it doesn't take much time to, you know, work through screens or menus or drop down menus, blah, blah, blah. But to back to the mining thing, I think that that's critically important and that the U S has tried to uh, uh, mine rare earth elements at the, I think it's the mountain pass mine in California, the market, you know, they, but then they said, Oh, we need government support. It's the same thing. The automakers after Biden says, Oh, our stretch goal is, you know, uh, you know, this many zillion electric vehicles on the roads by 2030. And the automaker said, yeah, sure, that's great. But, you know, we're going to need a lot of subsidies for this. It's I mean, that disgusting. was essentially, I'm paraphrasing what they said, but this is almost exactly the, what their message was. And this was just, what, a week or 10 days ago that this came out. And I thought, oh, well, sure. They're saying, yeah, Mr. President, yeah, we're on board with this. But, you know, you, you're going to have to pay us. And it's going to be a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And it's just like, well, wait a minute. What what happened? I, I'm all in favor of free enterprise. I just want to see it work every now and then. Yeah, it doesn't seem. I just. Is there any going? Is there any way to turn this around? Is is it possible? Like when you talk to, I mean, I'm sure you talk to politicians and senators and representatives and stuff like that. When you talk to them about this stuff, why aren't more people standing and jumping up and down with their hands in their air, in the air? I don't understand. Especially when it comes to China. And giving them control over like all the silicon and the chips and the rare metals and all this other stuff that's needed to do this. How, why are we, why are we, you know, giving up and giving this to them and just saying, sure, no problem. Why are people freaking out? I, I think, I think that the message is starting to get through and I, you know, and look, I'm, I don't, this is my purpose. This is what I do. I don't, you know, this is what I've been talking about for years and I've got the fire in my belly to keep talking about it because the, there are few more, few issues that are more important in terms of our daily lives, in terms of the health of our society, than making sure that we have cheap, abundant, reliable energy and cheap, abundant, reliable electric power. And that both of those are critical then to make sure we have cheap and abundant, reliable transportation because they all go together. But I, I, to me, the, the key here is, as I said in my testimony, affordability, resilience, and supply chains. In that order, the affordability has to become first. And that's where I think it's the ability to cross the partisan divide is to say, well, if you're serious about low and middle income people, then the policy you're proposing is the wrong one. And we need to find one that addresses that without, you know, or 
or my just solution for that policy. was my idea for making low income people be able to get a car. And this this is not what I would want, but I'm just thinking in my mind of what 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 could happen. Oh, geez, is we've we've talked about this. <laughs> is if these companies are going to take these subsidies, then they need to also manufacture a car that is affordable. If you're going to take these billions and billions and billions of dollars, you need to take it in the pants and make a fifteen thousand dollar car. An eighteen thousand dollar car that people can afford. They, but they can't. I, I mean, I agree. I was at Costco. I'll send you the picture. They had a Chevy Bolt, a, a Chevy Bolt. It's the size of a Corolla, forty six large. I thought, son of a bitch, I could buy two. I could buy two Corollas for that. How I many Pintos I could buy? <laughs> you could buy forty six of them, I'm sure. Well, I don't think you could buy more than one because we know they don't exist anymore, except for this one we found. There's, I mean, there's how much? I would be interested to, interested to find out when you look at a forty six thousand dollars Chevy Bolt, which is the size of a kitchen table. What? How much margin is there now? How much? There's got to be a ton of margin. No. It's materials. I don't think that. I think they're losing money on every one they make. Man. I think that it's their, these are, these are mandate vehicles. That's the other part of it that, you know, where does Tesla make its money? It's not on, you know, the more cars they make, the more money they lose. Where are they making their money? It's on the government. It's on the the credits they're selling to other automakers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a scandal how how this is working out. And yet Elon Musk thinks he hung the moon. I mean, I've just, like, wait, wait a minute. I mean, where, where is the old idea that, you know, you make something and you do it without having, you know, to rely on the government to make it all happen? But I think that th- this is the other part of this that I think is really dangerous is that when you come to the refueling aspect of these vehicles, you go from a market where you have a lot of mom and pop, you know, uh, fuel stations or service stations. Some of them obviously are owned by big chains, but it's a very diffused industry. And instead, yeah. you're going to have to to replace that with government mandated or government owned refueling uh, recharging stations. Well, how is that fair? It's not, and it further skews the market, further queers the market in a way that it, the only way you fix that is well, oh, well, we need another government program. Well, and when does it stop? Oh, never, never. It never stops. It never, <laughs> ever, ever stops. Are we even close to having the infrastructure possible to make this happen in terms of the power lines, the transformers, the, the anything? How, like, uh, how much money, have you heard how much money this is going to cost to get us to a point where this would actually work? Has anybody said anything? There's, there are no really reliable estimates on what the overall cost of attempting to electrify transportation would be, but it's clear that they are the cost would be just exorbitant, and the and the cost would be you know of course it would be rate based by the utilities into the into the you know customers rate into the customers cost of electricity, but if you look at the flow and, and John DeChico is a very clever guy he just recently retired from the University of Michigan an expert on uh, automotive fuels and and automotive engines and so on he and I were talking about this the other day and he did some calculations on uh, like a truck stop and and the fuel flow for diesel fuel which is why do we use gasoline and diesel fuel? Well, because oil is a miracle substance. If it didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. Yeah, I mean, it's when a high it density, to, high density energy. It's high, high energy density, ease of handling, uh, easy to store at, at standard uh, temperature and pressure. 
he figured that if you at, a, at an average truck stop, you're talking about a, an energy transfer of something on the order when you have multiple trucks being refueled, something on the order of 250 megawatts of electrical equivalent transfer is happening when you move that, when you refuel diesel, big diesel trucks. Okay. I mean, it's just an enormous amount of energy that would require effectively a small gas-fired power plant. It's a quarter of a large nuclear plant. I mean, right. it's just a staggering amount of energy. You know, Robert, if only there was a way we could mount like a, a small energy plant in each one of these vehicles, and then they could fire their own fuel, perhaps. <laughs> you know, yeah, they could with carry along with them. That, with a fuel that's compact and only weighs, you know, six or seven pounds a gallon, something yeah. like that, that. And you could put 20 or you could have, they could have a range of two or 300 miles and, and maybe they, you could refuel them in maybe two or three minutes and that you know that the fuel would be ubiquitous and be one type of fuel that everybody could use that would be a marvel wouldn't it that would be great it, it would be it would be a shame if if they got rid of that and came up with a system that would be really really expensive so that the cost of goods everywhere would would skyrocket and cause a ton of inflation around the country yeah, and that the and that the range would would be uh, for those vehicles. They're only maybe a hundred or two hundred miles, and then when you ever you have to refuel, you'd have to stop and wait for three or four hours. Yeah, that would be that would be bad. I think. <laughs> have you looked at what Toyota has been saying about <laughs> how they want to do hydrogen and how the leap to EV has been too fast? Have you looked into that at all? I, I have. I've followed Toyota closely for years, and in fact, several years ago, I went to Japan and talked to some people at, at Toyota about it. Um, and their their stance really hasn't changed much. They you know they're they think the fuel cell is the way to go. But I'm just you know I I I, I haven't been drinking the hydrogen Kool Aid. I just think it's you know it's a it's a it's a very difficult molecule to manufacture. It's what's required. Then once you get the molecule, it's very small and hard. To, the tankage is difficult. The fittings, the valves are difficult. And I I, I haven't seen. I, I rode in a Ballard fuel cell bus 30 years ago. I haven't seen a single fuel cell vehicle. I don't know in the last I, I, maybe last time I saw three or four years ago. I mean, where do they come from? I, you know, it's again, where's the supply chain going to come from right. to make these things? I understand Toyota's argument, but you know they've been very, uh, very reluctant to jump on this all electric thing. And you know, I, I think those guys are pretty smart. They've had some pretty good success in making and selling automobiles. I think they had it right when they went full in on hybrids. They did. You know, think about the Prius was one of the first hybrid to market and that technology is i think where we should be at yeah but it's not progressive as it's, it's not there's not enough progress there <laughs> it's not glamorous if there's not enough no, progress not. you're not changing the world by i mean a lot of people think they drive a prius they think they're changing the world right. don't get me wrong but no you have but, the best of both worlds you could have plug-in hybrids so you can charge it at your home when there isn't an, a power outage but then you can still fuel it up but jake gasoline is evil Right. That's what it comes down to. And big oil is more eviler. Yep. Yeah. You yeah. Know, we have to do something that screws Exxon. I mean, that's just a that's a given. Right? It is kind it, of a little bit of like a gotcha thing, isn't it? Like, oh, we finally found a way to get those greedy oil companies. We got them. And don't get me yeah. wrong. These oil companies are deep in subsidies, too. There is no nobody out there doesn't have blood on their hands with taking government money and, you know, making a bunch of money on it. But they really have it out for the oil companies. Well, there's just no question. But I mean, two points there. And I, th I think that there's just no doubt that the hybrid is where the market is, has been going, I think, for particularly for city trucks, you know, trash trucks, you know, 
delivery vehicles, that's a very logical and flexible uh, uh, vehicle that is going to, I think, continue to make inroads. The, you know, I think is compressed natural gas, yeah, probably is, they're going to, you know, that's going to grow, but, you know, oil is still relatively cheap, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in regard to that. But I, I think that the, you know, the, the this idea that, oh, we're, we're just going to eliminate oil, we're going to eliminate hydrocarbons, it's a religion. It's a religion that it's, there is almost no uh, changing the minds of these ideologues because they only see carbon dioxide and that's the enemy and they don't consider any of the positives of the things that we get from hydrocarbons, whether it's plastics, whether it's, you know, home heating with natural gas, whether it's mobility or, you know, it's none of that matters to them because carbon dioxide and hydrocarbons are the great evil and we have to change society and that's the only goal. So why do you think that they're focusing so much on cars when we could look at like I was we look at shipping and bunker fuel and all these different things which are wildly polluting but nobody ever seems to More talk so about more so than any fleet yeah, nobody, of vehicles. Nobody talks about anybody, you know, farting and and traipsing all. You know, every every time someone farting? with farting, what are you talking about? Cows farting is a huge. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's it is. True. I know it is. And, but, but no, I was. I, I just t- think about people with Jeeps or like a hybrid Jeep or a Prius or a Tesla. They walk up to their mailbox and they pull their Amazon package out of there and they're all smiling, super happy. When in reality, that thing came over from China on a ship full of bunker fuel. Right. Well, I, I think the reason why transportation is being targeted is because, and and why it has been so difficult is because it's uh, the, it's the single biggest, if memory serves, the, the biggest single source of CO two emissions in the United States, and and it's a difficult segment of the of the economy to decarbonize. So there, the 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 goal of the Sierra Club, and I, I met a guy from the Sierra Club just a few days ago, it was a thoroughly disagreeable experience. Um, <laughs> But that that's their religion, right? We have to change society. We have to do this because of the earth. Well, okay, yeah, I'm love I love me some planet Earth. I'm an avid bird watcher, avid outdoorsman, but I'm I'm more concerned about people. The right. earth is gonna, as my buddy told me, like the earth is gonna be fine. <laughs> yeah, it, it'll scrub start. itself of our parasitic existence. Yes, and be uh, fine. We, the earth is gonna be fine, but we it we it's there's a. There's a an ideology here that is not that is fundamentally anti-human, and I I, it's, I think it's very dangerous because it is not it's one that isn't fully considering the impacts of the of and second order effects of these of these crazy policies like, like oh we're going to run the world with renewables and we're going to electrify everything well w- w- that just makes us our, our society so much more vulnerable raises costs on low and middle income people and 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 it makes us much more susceptible to catastrophic failure well the the counterpoint to that from your sierra club disagreeable experience guy would be well if we don't do something it's not going to matter because we're all going to be dead it, it, that's I mean, that seems to be the common thing is, well, global warming is going to get so bad that we're all dead anyway. So we got to do something. It doesn't matter what the cost is. It doesn't it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter how we get there. Whatever ends it takes to you know justify the means. That's it. Or, you know, it, that's that's that doesn't matter. That's what well, they would so, say. So, yeah, well, this is what the, you know, the Shiites would say, too. Right. You know, well, I mean, you know, it's this absolutist attitude. Well, wrong. <laughs> Absolutely insane. I mean, no. Climate change is a concern. It is not our only concern. And the idea that this is only these the thing that, that supersedes everything else, really. Well, what about, uh, oh, I don't know, school lunches for kindergartners who are hungry? What about that? What about, you know, people, what about disease? Oh, what about maybe a pandemic? 
maybe that could be a problem. Maybe we could consider that something that would cause global convulsions and end up killing millions of people right now instead of next month or next year or next decade or next century. The, you know, this this absolutism around climate change is deeply, deeply dangerous, and it's being used to justify uh, programs that could be costly to the United States, not to the tunes of billions, but trillions of dollars. Yeah, and it's it's weird that people will be so absolutist about it without thinking of the consequences and thinking of compromise, too. I mean, we all want clean air, clean water, and, and a beautiful place to live. We all want that. I think everybody wants that. 99.9 rep, repetition into infinity want that sure. there's probably one guy that like oh man this smog this is so great <gasps> oh, i'm sure there's yeah. that that weirdo out there <laughs> but, <laughs> but i think if most only, people want if only i could good. get a little more dioxin in my diet yeah please i just <laughs> where that where can i prop i love the i love the taste of lead in the morning yeah. where's the most prop 65 thing i can lick i want to lick it right now i'm <laughs> sure that guy's out there but we all want we all want this and we all want clean air but we're gonna have to work together to get there and i and I feel like there's this whole segment of people that don't understand that people are just getting rich manipulating everyone. And that's what bugs me so much as kind of like a, as a very libertarian kind of free market guy. I hate the fact that there's a bunch of people getting rich while these other people suffer because of something that is being used and manipulated. It just really, really, really scrapes me raw. I just hate it. Oh, believe me, I'm right there with you. I mean, again hanging from the same hymnal here, but I think what, you know, to me, what's remarkable is that we're seeing some of these effects in real time in the state of California. Mm -hmm. Electric rates in California went up last, last year alone went up 7%. They went up at seven times the average in the rest of the United States. California had their electric rates are 70% higher than the U.S. average. Their, their gasoline costs are nearly double what they are here in Austin, Texas. The, 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 they have the highest cost of some of the highest cost of living in America and the highest poverty rate in America. And yet they're pushing forward these these insane environmental and climate policies all of which are regressive. And what's what's heartening to me is that we're, we're seeing a backlash from the Latino leaders, the, the African-American leaders in, in California. I've had several of them on my podcast, the Power Hungry podcast, to talk about these issues. So the pushback is happening, and it's happening in, in the state that has traditionally been in the vanguard. And I think that's very, it's indicative of the growing discontent with a lot of this craziness. Yeah, I think you're going to start to see a big pushback. When people are are not able to travel and they can't as soon as people have trouble getting like a gallon of milk or there's or they're really really struggling or they can't get somewhere because they don't have any gas or the cars are too expensive or they can't get it repaired because an alignment on your fancy car is is like nine thousand dollars and they can't drive it anymore all these different things are going to push people over the edge and there i think there will be a backlash i hope there is well it just sucks what it's going to take to make it happen it's it's well it's it's interesting that you say that because i'm you know listen to what they say and watch what they do, right? That's the old, old adage. Well, okay, so we've listened to the Biden administration, all this other stuff, and what did they do just a few days ago? Oh, OPEC and Russia, would you please pump more oil because the price of gas is a little more higher than we want it to be? Well, which is it, some bitch? Which, but how do you want it? I thought we didn't need, I thought we were going to all be driving electric cars. Why are you begging our our foes? Well, I, mean, I wouldn't say there are enemies in, or, or our adversaries in the same way the Chinese are. I mean, we're very codependent, but we've been, you know, OPEC has been viewed as the, as an adversary as a, as a, uh, for a long time. And now the Biden administration is going to them and saying, pump more oil. I mean, that's the watch, listen to what they say, watch what they do, which is a whole different 
attitude toward than what we're hearing in the rhetoric around climate and the rest of it. It's, it's to me, it's truly remarkable. Well, it just makes you wonder how much they've got tied into oil futures and the spot price of oil right before they, <laughs> before they say <laughs> well, it. Yeah. Now, now you're now you're getting into the conspiracy theories. That, uh, <laughs> this just sounds this is every damn day with Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Robert, I really appreciate you coming on. Where can people find your podcast and where can they find out more about you? Uh, well, easily findable on the internet, on the interweb, on the Google. Um, RobertBryce.com is my website. The podcast is the Power Hungry Podcast. Uh, our new film, which I made with a, a, a colleague Tyson Culver here in Austin, is Juice: How Electricity Explains the World. And my new book, the sixth one. You don't have to read it; you just have to buy it. <laughs> Wait, is that the title? Because that'd be an amazing title. <laughs> It, it, well, yes. Well, it, it's almost a title because I've used that line so many times. The book is A Question of Power, Electricity, and the Wealth of Nations. You don't have to read it. You just have to buy it. If you buy it on your Kindle, I make a better royalty. So do that. Oh, okay. That sounds good. That sounds good. Well, I'll definitely check it out. I'll check out the the both. I'm in the car doing road trips so much. I'll probably buy the audio book and, and, and give it a go. I'm sure that did you do you have an audio book of that? We do have an audio book, well, and I go. recorded the audio. So my awesome. Mel Lewis voice, and you're in both of your ears. Thank you very much. <laughs> Robert, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. I'm glad we're uh, singing from the same hymnal, and it was good to have somebody on that's way smarter than me. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, it might be the first time. Thanks, fellas. I appreciate it. Take care. Take care. All right. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Do you hear that? He says that's probably the first time anybody's been smarter than me. I don't think that's what he meant. I think that's what he meant. I think, I think that... he was being self-deprecatingly funny. Oh. Saying like, oh, that's the only time someone hasn't been smarter than me. No, oh. he did not call you smart, which just goes to show how not smart you are because you didn't pick up on that. Oh, man. Yep. Destroyed. Busted. <laughs> so it was, it was interesting. Obviously, we've got a little bit of a political bent with with. with yes, all... we do. And I'm a little worried that for our listeners, but... I think you got to just take it all into context. Yeah, take it into context and, and make your own judgment. Um, what we should probably do is is have a, a, an opposing view. And I think what I we'll do is, so. is we're going to find somebody. Maybe we can find that fairly uh, the Sierra Club guy that was, was made him uncomfortable. It was right. We can find that guy to have him on the podcast. But I, I'd like to have a, an opposing view. And we'll, we'll definitely work on that and get that going and, and talk to somebody so we can hear the other side of the coin. Absolutely. All right. With that, we'll see you guys. When are we going to? When are we going to see everybody? Now we're going to see them next Monday. Because as we Monday. mentioned on Friday, we are now going every Monday for our quality instead of quantity. If you want more of the same, of course, head over to Patreon.com/slash/Overcast, where we will have even more good content. All right. We'll see you guys on Monday. Take care. We'll